History Lecture 35, uh, we have now, the temple has been destroyed, <coughs> we've, we've gone out to, we've done some very significant things and can't encourage you enough to be here and to come because the days, these are sad days as the Jews now are on mass in Bavel as a community in exile for the first time, not that it's the first Gullus of, of the Jewish people, but it's the first Gullus, uh, which is the mainstream normative center of the Jews, and it's it's a trauma. It's a, it's an absolute uh, it's an absolutely new world for them, um, and it's really interesting. A lot of very famous, important things that maybe you do, maybe you don't know. David, remind me. I have some Xeroxes for you. Um, anybody who wanted uh, timeline and the history of the Messiah and the genealogy chart, I made a couple copies you can take and maybe pass if anybody else wants one of those. And if you, if they're not enough, I'm happy to make more. You just have to remind me. Um, so now what's happened is is Basically, that's destroyed, you recall. The Jews have been marched out, that famous march to exile. Um, the 6,000 who'd remained behind, mostly Menashe's Am Haaretz, the assassination of Gedalia, we fast because of the assassination of Gedalia. Those Jews, the remnants who aren't massacred, anyway go down to Egypt, leaving the land of Israel for the first time since Yoshua uh, bereft of, of any Jews. And it's the last time in history, about 52 years, that the land will be open and um, empty of Klal Yisrael. Terrible, terrible uh, situation that's ne never supposed to be. <coughs> who then, do you happen to know this? I didn't mention this yesterday. Who then is populating this land? Who's then here while Klal Yisrael is gone? Who remains? And this is something, even though we didn't talk about it, if you've been following this class up until this point, uh, you should know. They are. Very good, Barak. Exactly. The Shomronim are here. And pay attention to that. That becomes a theological argument that they use till today. And when I take groups up to Mount Grisim and we talk to the Shomronim up there, they say that that's why they're more authentic and God loves them more. Because they, unlike Paul Yisrael, have had a non-stop continuity of being on, in the land. That's an interesting point that they have, too, and it's, it's accurate. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with that later. So we have various diasporas in and around the world, but by far the overwhelming, the largest one is in Bubble with the three different exiles, the children's exile, the uh, Harish and the Masgir, the, uh, the, 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 the exile of the Talmud and Chachamim, and the final exile after the Horban. And now let's take a moment and let's describe what do they find down in Bavel. It's an no, that's not true. It's an entirely new reality. And there's a lot of firsts that become very significant. I mean, part of the reason, part of the way, David, that we, we do the history is I, I, have a, I keep a strong eye on how does this affect us today? Like, it, how does it explain the world that we're, we're a part of today? And we scoot, scoot in. Um, how, how, do, how does it explain things? So a lot of things um, start for the first time in history and, and remain as part of the halacha, part of the Jewish system. So, for example, it's the first time that it's called for for Jews to daven for what's called shalom malchus. You know that when you live in Gullis, if you if you if you're a, if you're a <coughs> citizen of Canada, of Britain, of of, of America, so then there's an Indian to daven for the peace of whatever regime, wherever you find yourself, uh, because without it, as the Mishnah Perkyabo says, each man swallows his neighbor, we need some kind of order, you cannot live, it's, it's, halakhically, it's halakhically forbidden actually to live in a situation of anarchy, even a, even a less than desirable, even an oppressive regime is better than no regime at all, there has to be some kind of police force, 
And um, so they, they start davening for the shalom of this wicked power bubble that destroyed their temple, okay, but it's still a power and it's still some kind of, it provides some kind of law and, law and order, and as such, they start davening for it. Yes? I heard that's what, that's what gave uh, Judah, right? Uh, the, sorry, uh, Levi and uh, what's the tribe uh, permission to destroy uh, Dina? Who captured Dina? Levi and Shimon, Shimon yeah, and Levi, yeah. Captured the city. I mean, who was the city? That Shem. That that gave them permission because they they were anarchy. Ah, oh, right. Good, good, right. One of the explanations, it's kind of a shocking thing, we're going we're gonna to read it in Parsha in a few weeks in Parsha's Vayishlach, that, that, you know, how what gave the right uh, to, to, to Shimon and, and Levi to go and, just, and, and murder the men of, of Shem, and that's one of the lines they, they were violating. Um, that's the one mitzvah's ase, the one positive commandment that non-Jews are commanded, which is deen. They have to establish some kind of justice system. Without it, uh, it, it it's, it's, it's a jungle, literally. Now, you still got a problem, because if you, anybody here, there's an excellent book, they call it the Tyra. If you read the Tyra, one, it's predicated, Who's the base, uh, it's a wonderful book, bestseller. One of the assumptions in the Torah is the Jews are keeping the mitzvot specifically in Eretz Yisrael. And go look at the Ramban who elaborates on this theme in many places in his Perush and the Torah and on the Chumash, where outside of Eretz Yisrael, mitzvot are not the same. They count, you're supposed to do it, you're obligated to still be erisive, but it's, there's nothing, it's like a thousand times removed, keeping, wearing tefillin, keeping Shabbos and Chutzlar, versus doing the same in Eretz Yisrael. The potency, the power, this is where it's meant to be observed, and as a result, there are a lot of ways we do things here that will be defined differently in Chutzlar, and so on some level, Klal Yisrael is forced to forge a new life, a Golos life, for the first time, and it's one, maybe we take it for granted, but it's one that people who still continue to live in Gaulus have to also maintain. It's not normal, it's not normative. Um, so that, that, that this is a new phase in history. Um, <clears throat> it's a different kind of Gaulus. If you consider our earlier significant Gaulus that was in Egypt, Egypt was all servitude. Was, 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 I mean, the Jews had virtually no freedom of choice uh, and, and it was oppressive. Bavel is going to be in a stark contrast, Chazdei Hashem. It's benign, and what we find in this low time in our history, something actually bittersweet, um, the Jews would actually come to flourish and do very nicely in Bavel for several reasons. And Bavel will, it's gonna, not, not instantly, it's certainly a, uh, a progression, but Bavel's going to turn into the center of gravity of Klal Yisrael for over a thousand years. Uh, up until the period of the Rishonim. Yeah, it waxes and wanes, there are good times and bad times. But the, there's something very special there and unique. There's never been an exile quite like it. Even America, with its general relative acceptance of Jews and relative minimal anti-Semitism, certainly compared to almost every other Gullus where we found ourselves, doesn't, America can't hold a candle to Bavel in many ways. First of all, as we mentioned, as we marched with the Jews going out to captivity, uh, the Gemara Megillah tells us when Klal Yisrael went into captivity, the Shechina went with them, as it were. Um, Reb Shrira Gaon tells us, he, he was um, one of the Gaoni who wrote one of the early authoritative histories of Klal Yisrael. He tells us the following. The Jews came to various centers in Bavel. One of them was called Hutzal. Uh, it was near Ezra's base Medrash. Ezra's going to be one of our heroes coming up. And in Hutzal, which is south of Nahardah, 
um, the Shechina rested um, in, a, in a shul, in a synagogue. Similarly, <coughs> over in Naharda, a little bit to the north, there was another shul that I mentioned before called the Shaf Vyasiv Shul. Shaf Vyasiv. These are the earliest known shuls. Doesn't mean they're the earliest shuls. When you um, hear from secular or secularly trained tour guides, they'll tell you, oh no, the earliest shuls come from the late second temple period. You've heard that, you've heard that before? The reason they're saying that is because the archaeological evidence exists for the earliest shuls are the ones that have six of them were laid by, by uh, Shani, Masada, and Gamla, and there's one in Kiria Safer. Right, right, right. That's what they always say. But that's what they only believe what the archaeologists tell them. And the, uh, as we keep saying about the archaeologists, lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. Our tradition says explicitly not like that. Even though we don't have remnants of Shafiyasi or Hutzal, we know those shuls existed. Wait, and that's, our, that's part of our tradition. No, I'm saying those are the earliest ones that we know about. No, but like. And there's going to be, we're going to... There's earliest ones that we know about in history, not like, not in bubble, like in all of history. Those are the earliest ones we know about. Doesn't mean that there weren't similar structures earlier. Chances are there were, we just don't know their names. And it's not discussed, it's, there's no need to discuss it. You know why? The shul is not as central in the times when you have the Beis HaMikdash. You have the Beis HaMikdash, that's everything. It's all service. And before the Beis HaMikdash, you had the Mishkan. And even though there were bamos, as we, as we trace through all of history, the, the shul served a less primary purpose. Now that there's no base of mikdash, suddenly you need a rallying place for Jews to gather and assemble. If you think about the words, Beit Knesset, Knesset means gathering. That's where the people gather in, short of having a center of gravity based the base of mikdash. Now you have these shuls. And these two shuls are very interesting and significant. Klal Yisrael take stones and dirt with them from Yerushalayim carting them all the way into exile and they build these synagogues deliberately with the stones and dirt that they brought with them from Eretz Yisrael meaning, symbolically the foundation of the Torah that would be built in Bavel was specifically from Eretz Yisrael secondly the, the, the shuls were built there's a halachic sugi in itself um, on condition um, that the minute that they had the opportunity to return to Eretz Yisrael the shuls would not be relevant anymore. We wouldn't need them. They're temporary uh, in their function. Um, and that's why the stone and the dirt, are they're, they're staring daily and davening at the stones and dirt of Eretz Yisrael, knowing this is not what it's supposed to be. I sometimes think in contrast, you ever go to one of these spectacular shuls all around the world in these uh, beautiful diaspora communities that are built, and the fact that they're spectacular is correct halachically because the nicest building in town should be the shul and therefore if, if you're talking about a wealthy Jewish community it's, it's certainly appropriate that the, the shul should reflect that. Um, still there's an irony I don't know that I have an experience when you go to some of these shuls they're so extraordinary and the implication is they're here and they're meant to last for thousands of years when if you have any, any uh, affinity with Jewish history you realize there's nothing like that, and especially as we weave our way through history, we're going to talk about diasporas. Jews come and go. Talk about the wandering Jew. We really, we really do come and go, and the story of our life is that things really don't last, except in Eretz Israel's the one, one of, in, in terms of geography, it's the one physical constant. Everything else is transitory. Um, Mayor Shapiro, for example, um, in, the 19, in the 1920s raised money to build and his, his fundraiser catch was I'm going to build a base medrash to last a thousand years the sturdiest of buildings anybody know what I'm talking about Rav Shapiro's building 
in Lublin. Anybody traveled to Lublin in Poland before? You have this massive shul, what's called the Yeshiva Chochme Lublin. Yeshiva Chochme Lublin, a, 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 what is really a flagship yeshiva of the, um, of the Hasidic world. And um, it lasted some, about a decade before the Nazis closed its doors and burned all of its books. So talk about transience in exile. Nothing seems to last. Today, actually today it's made into a museum. When I was there in the early 2000s, uh, no, no, it was the late, late 90s, we went to the building, uh, and the buildings are very sturdy buildings, still around as Rabbi Mayor Shapiro predicted, but not quite as he imagined. The building's still around. At the time when I visited, it was a dental school where you walked in the corridors and smelled this unmistakable smell of formaldehyde and other chemicals, and you thought, oh, Great Torah was once learned here, but no more. And that's, that's the nature of our uh, transience everywhere but Eretz Yisrael. Anyway, when they built these shuls, they, meant they, they had built-in reminders that they weren't meant to be long-term and stable. We're all going back to Eretz Yisrael one day. Yeah? It's there now, though. I mean, recently renovated. Right, that's why I say, I know recently yeah. something's been changed. I was there, so now it's a shul. I mean, the, the, the still is an irony. It's not like there's a large population to sustain it. It's more of a uh, a tourist piece, right? Yeah. Tourists come through very nice, but it's not. Exa it's also not what Ramesh Pro envisioned. Also, sometimes you'll see like the, the nicest Jewish shuls, but like inside, like everyone will just be talking. Like kind of the the itself will just be. Terrible. Sometimes, sometimes there is that phenomenon. I, I always hesitate. I don't want to make a generalization. That's not always no, the case. Right. Sometimes you have a beautiful shul and they're very punctilious in halachic observance. But uh, you're right. There, there certainly are those places that are that they, you know, it's it's facade masking maybe something kind of empty that's going on underneath. Sometimes that's the case. Why is bubble so special? Why is bubble so special? So first of all, you have to realize. Picture yourself, and but what I keep encouraging you is imagine as we go through history that we're re-experiencing it. We should be going through this vicariously. Picture yourself in the mindset of Klal Yisrael in a strange land. Uh, alienated and, 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 and torn apart, crushed because they recognize their own guilt, their own, their own uh, culpability in the destruction of the base of Mikdash and the, the radical, radical trauma that, that, that uh, befalls Klal Yisrael. One of the first things that, uh, one of the first acts of chesed from Hashem is he takes them not to any old land, he takes them back to, to Zaidi's homeland. Meaning we're not in China, we're not in Argentina. We go back to Ur Kazdin, where Avram's original home and Yaakov spent so many years there and all the Shvatim, almost all the Shvatim except for Benjamin were born there. Um, it's relatively close to Eretz Yisrael. That, that's huge. And it testifies, you know, there's been since that time a relative constant presence in Bavel Till, well, some people argue until about 1952, 1953, which was the massive Iraqi aliyah to Eretz Israel, to, to, to the new state of Israel. But there's still some Jews, even till today, who are in Iraq, and that's, that's the ancient Babylonian community from this time. Um, and, and keep in mind also that for a good millennium, it dominated world Jewry. It was the address. No, before there's such a thing as Sephardic. No, 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 but I mean, Everybody comes from Bavel, no, Ashkenazi no, and Sephardic, no, no, and we're going to talk about when those things were created, no, no, Ashkenazi no, and Sephardic. No, like, uh, today it's, 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 it's overwhelmingly Sephardic, that's but true. Uh, I don't have the numbers, I don't have the demographics, but it's, it's small because they're, they, they're persecuted. Not, not, a, not a great place. I mean, as ISIS rises exactly in that region, it's not, it's not a desirable place to say the least. And not Iran, though, right? 
Uh, Iran, there are also Jews there. There's a Persian community, ancient Persian community too. Also an offshoot of the Babylonian community. Now, um, what we find in Babel relatively early on, greatly because of that second exile of the Harish and the Masker, they set the infrastructure, Jewish life, meaning halachic living, was well organized. Um, Jews early on came into wealth. They did, they did very well. Um, it was deep in Torah and rich in Torah from the get-go for the same reason. Um, people sometimes try to make a parallel between the United States in Bavel or some of the other diasporas in Bavel, and I think they break down. One of the uniquenesses is that the Jews of Babylonia, and they did remain after, uh, we're going to see within a, within a generation, the Jews are going to be invited to go back and rebuild the base of Mikdash, um, and many Jews remained in Bavel, and so sometimes you hear this, let's say, uh, secular Zionists or sometimes even other Zionists, will say, oh, you know, they stayed back in Babylon, the siren song of assimilation, of, of, of diaspora, that's just like modern American Jews, when they had the opportunity, when the state was created, they also, they, you know, Ben-Gurion and, and the, the founders of the state had this notion that they had to do the dirty work and fight the wars and drain the swamps, but eventually the Americans, all, all everybody in the world would follow, and everybody would make mass aliyah starting in the 1950s. They're still waiting for the Americans. So they try to say, oh, America, the American Jews are too comfortable in America, just like the Babylonians got too comfortable in Babylon. Europeans. And the Europeans got too comfortable in Europe. And the analogy breaks down, because in Babylon, and we're going to see this soon, um, they built such a strong Torah center that it was actually greater than Eretz Israel. So on legitimate Torah grounds, to stay back in Babylon was actually reasonable. Going to Eretz Israel would have been uh, a little tricky. Um, now, the environment in Bavel was superior in terms of Tyra, but not uniformly. We know, for example, um, the Gadol Ador, for a certain period, was Daniel, we're going to meet today. Um, he lived in a place called Elam, which is described in the Gemara as a little bit more corrupt. And, uh, he was, and the, the Gemara in Kedushin tells us that he was Zohar to learn, but he didn't have an audience to teach. So it wasn't uniformly excellent, don't get me wrong, life is complicated, but it was pretty good. Um, Next, one would expect going to exile, a series of harsh decrees, slavery, you remember Egypt, and that didn't happen. Hashem, Chazde Hashem, he made, the, the only difficulty was they had to pay taxes in Babel, okay, I can handle that. They had to pay taxes, but other than that, the valley climate was very pleasant. The, uh, they planted gardens, they ate from the fruits, they had date palms in abundance, they had plentiful linen for clothes. They owned homes. Not everybody, but increasingly, they owned their own land. Um, when you have material plenty and you're from, what that means is you don't have to worry about a parnasa so much, and you can devote most of your time and attention to learning Torah, and that's what they did. So on some level, it was an, in, in certain ways, it was an idealized kind of a lifestyle. Uh, in Bavel, they had many children. Uh, some of the rulers would appoint them as ministers, as we'll find. Aramaic is a, it was a language that was already something of a lingua franca, lingua franca in the world. People were conversant in Aramaic. The Jews had it all the way back at Harsinai because, you know, we got Targum Unculus. The Targum of the Torah itself was part of the package when we received the Torah. So Aramaic was a known entity. In fact, some of the words in the Torah come from Aramaic. 
Yigar Sadusa, the way the way Lavan refers to the pile of stones, Gal Eid, he refers to in, in Aramaic terms. It was so, written before or after they were in the, in the What was written before? After before they What was written? The Torah? Yeah. The Torah predates the world? No, no, I mean The written Chumash? Written Chumash predates the world. Yeah, the Zohar tells us, Istakli v'araisa uvara alma. Hashem looked in the Torah and created the world. So, so the, 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 when you have elements of Aramaic, almana, the Gemara Kesubos tells us the word almana has an Aramaic derivation, almana, because you give her a mana, it's the hundred. To be fair, what you're asking really, I don't know if this is what you have in mind, but it is a bit of a sugya and therefore a bit of a machlokis. Yeah, fine. Is this too much? No. It's you're comfortable? Fine. Um, oh, fine. That's good. So you can open the back too if you need to air it out. The, um, it's a machlokis in the Sanhedrin about actually how it was written. The Torah was definitely written though. The question in Sanhedrin is what the script of the Torah was. Was it was called Ksav Ivri, Ksav Ashuri? I don't want to do that topic right now because we're going to see it in the coming days. We're going to get to that. But um, we had a written Torah. We had already a written Torah. Right now, so, was Gemara written Gemara, no. The written Torah. You're talking, the, the, the Gemara is the written version of what was in these generations still transmitted by word of mouth. Ishmi Pi'ish. That's the Messiah. That's the sheet. David, the, the Masora sheet that I passed out, that's what's, that's what's being transmitted. Um, if anybody wants, you, can anybody else take the other copies that I have? If anybody wants those other sheets, you're welcome to grab them, maybe pass them up to David. Um, so in the Masora sheet, you can see who's right now in the, in the, in the link in the chain. We're, we're in the middle of the period with Yirmiyahu, Baruch Benaria, and then Ezra. So that was all transmitted by word of mouth. Let me get back to Aramaic. Aramaic, in addition to being a familiar known entity, was also um, it was also very similar to uh, to lashon hakodesh, to the holy tongue, to Ivrit, to Hebrew, which means they could actually speak Aramaic and retain their holy tongue, and it wasn't a conflict of interest. So that's a big deal. Think about anybody have family who came over and went to Ellis Island and went to went to the Americas. That was a major tribe. Most of us did. I did. Um, that was a major trauma because English is not Yiddish. This is not this is not the shtetl anymore, uh, right, Dorothy Toto? Um, right? This is we're we're, we're not. We're, yeah, it's, 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 but here was not quite the radical transition. Um, Aramaic itself would attain a kedusha, not the level of of lashon hakodesh, but it has a kedusha. That's why we know that Hashem honored Aramaic by including it in parts of the Tanakh. Which books are written in Aramaic? Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Some of it has some Hebrew, but um, some of our tefillos that we say, Brich Shmei that we say as the Torah is being taken out, and many other tefillos are said. I didn't hear the question. It, it evolved, but right now, Aramaic will be increasingly the language the Jews spoke. Ivris is the. We did a whole. I think before you joined the class, we did a whole session on the uh, Hebrew. Was is Hashem's own language, the original language before Migdal Bavel, before the Babylon, the Tower of Babylon. And, and so now that's going to evolve. And at this phase in history, Aramaic increasingly becomes the dominant language. Um, we know, for example, it still, it still filters into our tradition. The months are named 
for the Aramaic names of the months. We're in Marcheshvan now. That's it. That's an Aramaic name. It's even a bit of a shaila. It's a kashya because some of the names, for example, Tammuz was originally the god of fire. It has has pagan roots, and the Jews stripped the paganism out of it, but the name stuck. The name was retained. Uh, but it's a discussion in the post scheme how how we still retain these names that don't have an authentically Jewish foundation. Really what the Jews were doing, and get this formulation, I find this very helpful. Really what they did when they got to Bavel is the Jews made Bavel Jewish instead of Bavel making the Jews Babylon making the Jews Babylonian. You ever heard this question? Are you a Jewish American or an American Jew? What is your essential identity? And in many of the exiles, the exile itself was so appealing that the Jewish part became secondary, if not tertiary, you know, of, of minimal importance, and the dominant culture would come to dominate the Jewish life. Um, even, even good practicing uh, you know, Jews, often in America, get swept up with the seductive life of the, of the American culture. Um, but that was not the case in Bavel. Um, we know, by the way, Aramaic would retain some Kedusha, would, would have a level of Kedusha. Other languages, on a, maybe a slightly lesser level, would do similarly. What other languages also acquired Kedusha? What is it? Greek, Greek but an old Greek that no longer Latin. is spoken. Um, not Latin. What? Not French. Uh, I don't know Rashi speaks in old, old French, but it didn't never, I don't think anybody ever talks about it as having Kedusha. Uh, There's something really obvious, a couple languages really obvious that you should know. Yiddish. Yiddish. Yiddish, because so much great Torah was taught, was developed in Yiddish, Yiddish itself, and we speak about Yiddishkeit as a reflection of the Jewish culture from that, from that period, and to maybe a lesser degree, but, but still significant, um, in, in Sephardi cultures, Ladino. So much Torah was learned in Ladino too. So we see when there's a, when there's a strong Torah culture, that actually affects the language itself. Yeah. But, uh, but in Megillah, in the Mishnah, it says uh, you can only write books in either Hebrew or Greek. Or Greek. Yes, that's a discussion we'll get there too. We're not, we're not a Greek yet. Greek is coming, coming around. Um, yeah. <coughs> the settlement in Bavel is defined as a set, what's called Kavua settlement. That meant that many of the takanas that the rabbis had made, many of the decrees made about Eretz Yisrael applied in Bavel. So for example, do you know in Eretz Yisrael we're not allowed to raise small animals like goats? In Eretz Yisrael there's a decree lest they, go, lest they be used for grazing on other people's property. And because cause even today it pertains, but there are coolers, there are leniencies around this, but the decree was made nonetheless because um, it was a reason. It was a common phenomenon where you had, let's say, sheep or goats, and they grazed on somebody else's territory. And and we, we the, the land of Israel is particularly finicky and 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 uh, and and delicate. It's constitutionally delicate, and it's allergic to sin. So we try to stay far away from sin, and therefore there was a decree like that. Well, Bavel, which was not Eretz Israel, but was almost Eretz Israel, the decree also applied. And therefore, they didn't raise what's called behemadaka in Bavel. That's a discussion over in, in the Gemara and Baba Kama. Yoshua uh, made ten decrees. We, we talked about this when we learned about Yoshua that pertained in Eretz Israel. They also applied in Bavel. So, um, so there's a suite a year? Ah, ah, ah. We'll get there in a moment. Um, yeah, they, um, well, first of all, they made their own new takanas in Bavel. So for throughout this early phase of the Gullus, in Bavel, they made a takana that they only ate fish, fowl, or deer, deer, but they did not eat any red meat. It was a kapara, as long as they couldn't eat korbanos in the base of mikdash, okay, no hamburgers, no steaks for that period. Um, 
there was a, there was some degree of the uh, what you call the the uh, the mitzvahs that clears for Eretz, the agricultural laws like shemitah, like shumos and maestros and orla and like that, but not to the degree in Eretz Yisrael. Um, they also think about it. I, nobody's asked about this. It's really a logical thing. Now that you don't have a base of mikdash and we have to redefine Jewish life, you're going to need the central Torah authority in Bavel to start deciding when is the new month. When is leap year? What's called Shanamu Uberis? All these things for Jewish life to function, we got to have a central address. They were doing this. Um, they, they, uh, what's that? How would they daven without a? Uh, they, they used to give sacrifices. So they didn't daven. So then Hoshea's pasuk became live. Unshalim farms Svasenu, where we pay with the the offerings of our lips. Now that's also relevant. We have the base of Mikdash, so that's the next best thing. And finally, Bavel had an authority, just like it was, it's usher to stam leave Eretz Yisrael. You know that halacha, right? We left that out of the um, Derech brochure for fear that you might not have come, but now that you're here, uh, the news is that it's sort of like the proverbial Hotel California. You can check in anytime you like, but now you're stuck. You can never leave. Um, by the way, that's a halacha. You have to have grounds to leave Eretz Yisrael once you're here, because you're doing a major holy mitzvah. Yeah, By being grounds. here, there are grounds, but you have to know them. Who said? My family's in America. Halachically? How long have you been in Eretz Yisrael? Okay, some say 30 days is enough to define you as being a Ben Eretz Yisrael. Now what's your head to the leaf here? Uh, no, it's related to grounds to leave, but in itself is not grounds to leave. I didn't mean to slide into this tangent right now, so I, I refuse to spend more than a minute on it, but I will give you a couple, I'll answer a couple of questions and I'll give you a little bit. Parnasa is potentially grounds to leave. That's not the same as having spent money on university, which you might have just made a bad investment. Nobody told you to spend that money if you're coming to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, by the way, again, there are leniencies, but your orientation should be, I'm in Eretz Yisrael. And to leave, I better have a good reason. Ooh. All the more reason you should stay. Parents. Apparently, yes. Uh, so if you're saying that 30 days is enough to live according to so, according to one approach, yeah. Uh, so Some would say, based uh, Magen Abraham brings down from the basic Gemara Ksubas that walking Dalit Amos is enough. So we're showing people that. touche. Some might say the same, but but um, unfortunately for your line of thinking, most post king disagree. Oh. They'll learn the sugyan. Uh, yeah. Anyway, similarly, just like Eretz Yisrael had that quality, so too in Bavel, it was technically usher to leave for a lesser gullus unless you had good reasons. Right? So you have a sense, Bavel's really different. And they wrote a whole new rule book when it came to uh, life in Babylon, Babylonia. The, uh, we know in contrast, Ashur, Assyria, was a benign culture. It was one of the many uh, diasporas that was very uh, had some, something that was appealing and <laughs> attractive to the Jews. And we also have a strong understanding that, that many, if not all, of the ten tribes that were taken exile there, the ten lost tribes, assimilated there. There is such an idea. Um, Bavel, in contrast, and this is important, Bavel is crude, bitter, nasty. We already, we already found Nebuchadnezzar, the, the erstwhile em uh, the, the, the emperor at the time, uh, eating a live rabbit, and that's just the beginning. Um, they coerce people with their religions. Uh, the Jews, interestingly, actually became strong in adversity. Usually, receptive diasporas are terrible for us spiritually. In Europe, for example, the least receptive uh, communities were the, usually the Eastern European, Poland, Russia, 
And, and the Jews of Russia looked at their Cossack neighbors, drunkards, most of them, and they said, that's disgusting, and they had nothing to do with them. And, and, and Torah and Yiddishkeit thrived. And I think about my mom was born in Yugoslavia, which some say was maybe the example of an assimilated country, because Yugoslavia had a, let's say, a more advanced culture, Croatia and such, and so Jews assimilated more. Usually where it's more appealing, it's worse for us spiritually. So Asher is more appealing and bad for us spiritually. Bavel is disgusting, and the Jews, ironically, became strong. Um, the Jews in Bavel lived apart. They dressed differently. We know that on Chagim, they immersed themselves in Simcha. Part of that, the Talmud Chachamim developed a new mode of dress. They wore white. They looked like the Malachi Asharis. It was beautiful. Um, many in Sephardi cultures retained this until the modern era, until the hat and jacket took over everything. Uh, you see the old pictures of some of the great Sephardi sages. They had this beautiful white wrap. Sometimes you see the Rambam in such depicted in this in this fashion. That was that was how they dressed back in Bavel too. The uh, we no longer had a special mode of dress for the king or the, or the Kohen Gadol, and Kesha had to survive, so the dress reflected that. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if that's exactly, that's what we, we see in the pictures, but those are more contemporary. Who knows exactly? They, usually, we don't have drawings. We, don't, we have no testimony about what life was back in the day, like back in the day, but okay. Um, what, some of the examples of the of the uh, crazed culture, Nebuchadnezzar, after he destroyed Ninveh, he raised it to the ground. He uh, he went around. He in his own courtyard. He went around and rode untamed lions in his court. And if they killed so many people, that was not of interest to him. He didn't care. He had, he had very little value for human life. He kept snakes, <laughs> the poisonous kind. Um, he had courtesans around, constantly flattering him. And he, for sports, he had a lot of fun with them. He would throw vipers on them and see what see what happened. Um, and the Jews were repulsed, and they, 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 they stayed away. Yeah, Arya, don't listen to Don't take too strong notes here, Arya, come on. Uh, we also know that um, it was, uh, as, a, as a secular, as a, as a culture outside of the Jewish world, uh, the Gemara tells us ten measures of poverty descended to the world. Nine of them went to Bavel. And so here you have Klal Yisrael existentially, in a sense, lost outside their land. They lost their king, they lost their dynasty, they lost their, their sovereignty. And under these circumstances, they come to the conclusion that the only thing that really matters in life is Torah and mitzvahs. <laughs> they revered their Nevim, the same Nevim that they had torn their beard, they tore the beards off their face and threw into <laughs> piles of quicksand, suddenly became role models. Like the... Uh, the artist who, during his lifetime, everybody people ignored him or made fun of him, and then after he died, everybody suddenly loves him. It's a renaissance of interest, right? So, so that was the situation, and now their Naveen become celebrated figures. We already saw, uh, remember, Yirmiyahu going to, to Bavel and suddenly being received by the Jews warmly. Um, the Jews were noticed, also the Gemara Megillah, they hated idolatry, and the hatred of idolatry became so closely associated with Klal Yisrael um, that the, in Bavel, anybody, even non-Jews who stayed away from idolatry had a nickname. They called him Yehudi. That was the nickname. You Yehudi, you, you don't even like paganism. Throughout their stay in Bavel, they longed for Eretz Yisrael. Shir Hamalos, B'Shuv Hashem, Eshivat Sion, Hayinu Kechomim. We were like dreamers, dreaming of Eretz Yisrael, longing, pining away 
for the beauty, the splendor of this rich land that they took it for, they took, they took it for granted while they have it. We should take warning here. We're here. We're in Eretz Yisrael. We should appreciate what we have. They took it for granted and they lost it. So how did they commemorate it? Each day, each family had a tradition. They had a beautiful minag. They all got up and they declared their true home. We're just temporary residents in a foreign land, but their true home, the goal, of course, was to return. They'd get up and they say, we come from Anatot. Anasosim Anachnu, they would say. We're from Beis Lechem, Beis Lechemim. And all the cities, and in fact, we'll see this when they initially go back, some of them go back and reclaim their original cities. Very powerfully. I mean, a very poignant, poignant image. Um, my association, do you know modern, who, who's here on modern history? Some of you have some modern history, don't you? You have some modern history? So do, do, do you know what happened um, in 1948, uh, the day before the Declaration of Independence, there was a terrible massacre in Gush Etzion, uh, men, women, awful, awful story. And in 67, when they reclaimed that land, and after 67, um, some of the uh, children, the descendants of those victims, of the massacre victims, went back and rebuilt Alon Shfut, where two days ago there was a tragedy where the woman was stabbed to death. Um, the same place where Alon Shfut was built from the descendants of the original pioneers of Gush Etzion. My so, okay, interesting. Yeah, it's very powerful. Like an Arab house up in Ireland, used to live there. Yeah. And he just like claimed it. And it's like, that's where he lives today. The Jews returning to their borders. They uh, initially, do you know that, um, do you know the calendar system that we think of today, like Tafshin, Ayin, Hey, that's our year, 57, um, 57, 70, 75. Um, that's, uh, we've been using that maybe since the Seder Olam, but back in the day they had different ways of counting the years. We counted the years, we counted the years from Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and then I mentioned this, we counted the years from Binyan Beis and Mikdash when Shlomo built the temple. And from the kings, And from the kings also. Now they counted the years um, based on the Chorban. Their whole orientation, in other words, it's three years, 12 years, 17 years since the Chorban Beis and Mikdash. Meaning their whole consciousness was around Eretz Yisrael and the Beis and Mikdash. Um, suddenly in history, there are new fast days that become nationally observed fast days. So it's not just Tisha B'Av, which was the obvious fast day when the temple was destroyed, and, when the, when the, uh, and, and of course, at this point, still commemorating the sin of the spies, now, for the first time, you have Asara Batavis, the 10th of Batavis, which was when the city was first besieged. They celebrated the 9th of Tammuz, which later on would become the Yudzayim Batamuz, when the walls were breached. They fasted on Som Gedalia, because of they, they knew what had happened, and the Jews left the land of Eretz Yisrael when Gedalia was assassinated. They uh, maintained their Yichis impeccably. Everybody knew who was a Kohen, who was a Levi. Mamzerus was kept in a box. You know, Mamzerim were very carefully handled, and you couldn't marry them clearly. Um, and each family of Kohanim practiced their avoda that they did in the base of Mikdash. Each um, the Levim had different jobs too. They were the they were the singers and the gatekeepers. And each one, in anticipation of the rebuilding of the temple, practiced their respective avodas. The, um, as, as, as we said, the Navi made a, made a special decree. I mean, I don't know about today. There's a question of people who have a tradition of being Levim, whether they're legitimate <coughs> Levim. Eliyahu Navi is going to come back and, and clarify all these questions of Yichas. But uh, one, I, I know a lot of Levim with beautiful voices. Um, as we said, they did make a decree to take Trumas and Maestros to keep Shemitah year. We said this already. And when we were doing this, the Goyim made fun of us. 
They made fun of us because they said, very reasonably, you lost your land because you neglected to keep the Shemitah year. When you had the opportunity, it didn't mean anything to you. Now you're in captivity. Now you're in exile. And suddenly you're keeping Shemitah. Yeah, and the Goyim had a point, no? We're, sometimes the, it takes the non-Jews to see the truth, what, we, what we're blind to. They notice, they, they, they penetrate, they, they, they see the reality. And it's during this early period in Bavel that there was uh, a, a new figure who emerged on the scene, of a few figures of, of, of importance, but one of them is a major figure of importance uh, for then and for now, um, that emerged on the scene by the name of Yechezkel ben Buzi HaKohen. He also came from a Kohen, a lineage Kohen. That's Yechezkel, who, if you can picture the books of the Tanakh, he has the third of the very long books of Nevoah. Before we get to the shorter 12 prophets, you have Yeshaya, Yirmiyahu, and you have Yechezkel. Yechezkel is the next figure that I'm going to introduce right now in the, in the last couple of minutes, and I'm not going to keep you late today. And tomorrow, fasten your seatbelts, uh, come. We're going to see. We're going to see one of the most momentous, momentous nights in all of history, uh, filled with miracles and spectacle and, and significance. Uh, that is also a lot of fun. Very, very interesting night. And Yechezkel Ben Buzi is really the master of ceremonies at that at that particular evening. Um, his story, his background. He was a Navi actively for five years prior to the Golos of Yoyochin. And why is that significant? I mentioned this detail recently. A person can only become a prophet in Eretz Yisrael. Right? That was also with yesterday we talked about with Baruch Benaria. He wanted to stay, so he had prophecy. Um, so, so Yechezkel had already been a Navi for five years, and he was in the second exile with Yoyochin. Um, and he would continue for the next 22 years, the early phase of Gullus Bavel, that like his cousin Yirmiyahu, the late Sonim, the, uh, the jokesters would make fun of him. They said, ah, we know your great-great-great-grandmother. Her name? Rachav. Rachav. Remember, they also, they, he also descended like Yirmiyahu from, from Yoshua and Rachav. And uh, they, they didn't revere their prophets initially. Later, later Yechezkel would be revered. Um, unique and, and stands anybody learn Yechezkel it's one of the hardest books in the Tanakh a little bit Wait, how was the context uh, I just read the part of the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the first the first it's what we read it's the first chapter that we read on Shuas and Chagmas and Torah it's incredible I'm going to tell you why you're all going to want to read it and, and I, I, I get no commission on this but the art scroll uh, elaborated version written by Rav Moshe Eisenman is outstanding it's fantastic what he did, what he does, and Yechezkel is difficult, and he makes it accessible. Um, so I warmly recommend it if you're looking for good projects to work on. Um, his is unique as, as, as Navua. Much of the other Navim we read, in, and, and their words strike us as sometimes poetic, sometimes you know, high and, 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 and uh, high-level uh, poetic Hebrew. Um, Yechezkel is distinct. He spoke in what's more of, we would describe it as a simple and direct prose, which the Mepharshim, like a prose, meaning just ordinary, simple speech, it reflects the, na the nature of Gullus. When you don't have Eretz Yisrael, there's little reason to, to wax poetic. And so he was more straightforward in, 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 in the language of a simple um, country individual, a person from, from, a, from a village existence as he was, and um, we remember Yechezkel was in contrast with Yeshaya. Yeshaya was described as a ben, uh, 
Ben Krach, a city metropolitan person, and that's why his images are, are, are very understated and elegant, like somebody coming from New York describing the architecture of New York in very simple terms, in contrast with Yechezkel, who used who uses the florid terminology of a Ben Kfar, of a village, of a country boy, because uh, everything is, 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 is miraculous to him, is stunning to him, and, 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 and his, his book, his words really reflect this. Um, so we'll, we'll start tomorrow and come on time because it really unfolds in a very spectacular scene and it reflects uh, where, where Klai Yisrael is holding at this important turning point.